0: Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. Today with Milwaukee Bucks general manager John Horst, the 2019 NBA Executive of the Year, talking about the best team in the NBA right now, his star Giannis Atenecupo, his future in Milwaukee, and a lot more. And before we get going on today's episode, I want to remind you to check out The Low Post with Zach Lowe. You can find The Low Post wherever you get your podcasts. Now here's my conversation with Milwaukee Bucks GM, John Horst. Here in New York on a Friday night with the 2019 NBA Executive of the Year, the GM of the
1: Milwaukee Bucks, John Horst. John, how are you? I'm great, Woj. Thanks for having me in. Where where do you keep that trophy? On, where, where is it? The trophy is in the office, uh, front and center. Um, uh, it's a good spot for all the guys that helped me get there. Uh, all of our staff get to see it every day when we're in the office meeting. So, uh, those guys are all part of it. I'm great, great to share with all of them.
0: It was, I mean, John, you think of becoming the GM in Milwaukee, um, the process that led to it and, and your elevation and how many guys in the league, I mean, I think the rank and file people knew you in the league you're out scouting and you know the people but like were there GMs when they start to reach out like who didn't have John Horse's cell phone and their phone like when you first got the job and now you're dealing on a different level with the guys in the league
1: do you remember some of like do I even know what Horse looks like right yeah i think um, you know i'd been in the league for quite a while up to that point and so i'd spent a lot of time talking to a lot of the people in the league, GMs, assistant GMs, had relationships, the types of relationships, quite frankly, that probably happen in a lot of professional yeah. sports over the phone. Um, but then when you get a position like this and you start front-facing and being in different settings and different uh, arenas with these guys, um, yeah, I think there's an element of, oh, so you're John Horst. Now, so now <laughs> the, the name to the face. And uh, so that was kind of a fun fun part of it for sure early
0: on. I, I want to get into <laughs> some of that and, and your your road to becoming a GM in the league. There's a lot of unique stories Um, yours is at the top of them, but, but John, this Bucks team right now, 37 and six on pace potentially for 70 wins based on how it goes. You know, your roster changed this offseason and there were, you know, you lost Malcolm Brogdon, who was an important part. Did you feel like this season might have been, that your group might have had to feel it out a little bit more versus, a group that from opening night has just, has been dominant, has been certainly dominant at home, and it doesn't feel like there's been a lot of searching with this group about style of play, how the pieces fit. Like It, it was like you were shot out of a rocket.
1: Yeah, I think um, in team building it's interesting. So there are there are additions, there are subtractions year in and year out. Um, what I've been focused on, what our group has been focused on, and really a philosophy is to try to figure out a core group that we could put together that will allow us to sustain success, significant success, over a long period of time. And the main parts of that core exist. And the group that was part of the team last year that led us to 60 wins, that that led us to an Eastern Conference Finals and a really dominant playoff performance, um, until those Eastern Conference Finals, they're there. You know, the George Hills and Brooke Lopez and Chris Middleton, Eric Bledsoe, Giannis Dettacumbo, that group is there. And I think when you have a core group that you can rely on and fall back on, then the additions piece works better. And so, um, Malcolm was obviously a key decision for us and, and a key thing for us to figure out. But we were able to put, uh, in place guys like Wesley Matthews that would fit systematically and fit culturally, we thought. Um, same thing with Kyle Corver. Dante, we knew, was going to be able to step in and play minutes. And so, you know, Robin Lopez has helped us. I think that uh, those guys set a tone in the locker room. They set a tone in our culture, and then obviously style of play between Giannis and Bud, uh, we have a, a very specific style of play, and it's easier to plug players in. and I think that's why you've seen it kind of be a seam- seamless transition from last year. and In a lot of ways, we feel like we're better.
0: It, John, the, the kind of you, you've been in Milwaukee as long as Giannis has, and he came in as I mean, just just a teenage kid from Greece who was trying to figure out. Like, how to drive a car, how not to hydroplane it, um, how to, uh, do a lot of things that, you know, other rookies might have taken for granted having lived here. And you've seen him grow and evolve and your relationship with him change. You go from being in a support role with John Hammond when he was the GM and, and I think there was a lot of early with Giannis, just making sure that he was adjusting, that he was uh, assimilating into like the community and learning to live on his own, and then his family came over. But the relationship now, the kinds of conversations you have with your franchise player,
1: what are they generally centered around? You know, um, I think this is something that, that I'm proud of and that I appreciate about Giannis and, and hopefully something he's proud of and appreciates about me. Um, do we have to have different conversations than what we had uh, when I wasn't a general manager, the one responsible for running the basketball operations side of, of the business that impacts him so much, of course. Um, so we have some of those conversations. But what I really enjoy, and it's not just Giannis, it's all of our guys, um, the personal conversations. We spend a lot of time talking about how his family is, how Mariah is doing, how his mom is doing, how his brothers are doing. And likewise, you know, Giannis, my, my kids love Giannis. Giannis loves my kids. We talk about that. Um, and I think that that's a healthy dynamic. All of our players understand that they have jobs to do, that I have a job to do, that Coach has a job to do. I think we all have a healthy respect for what our roles are within the organization within this machine that that is uh, NBA basketball. But the environment and the culture we've tried to create in Milwaukee, and I think we've done a good job so far, is there is a family environment. We do care about personal parts of, of each other's lives outside of basketball, and we try to celebrate those things and share those things with each other. It's no different with the honest than it is with the other, any of the other players. When you think about what you do to build a team around Giannis, try to build a future around
0: Giannis, try to put in place everything that he would want to, to sign another long-term deal with the Bucks. Are there any models of similar teams and similar markets with, I don't want to say similar stars. There's never been anybody quite like Giannis, but players who organizations have wanted to keep maybe, you know, in smaller markets. Have you studied anything? Have you, is there anybody out there you've spent time trying to really examine how they went about it? See if there's some things you could learn as you, um, as you guys try to piece
1: this together. Yeah, I think um, for sure we've studied that. That's things that we we study champions all the time and not just in in the NBA. We study champions in the world of sport. And there's a lot of things that you can learn about champions and the way that they build it. And there's a lot of different ways to attack it Um, for us. You know the obvious in, in in our league is is the San Antonio Spurs and the model that they they were able to build something and sustain it over a very long period of time um, with different tenants at the top, um, different different uh, foundations, key key players at the top of it, and you know I think they did it through a very intentional style of play. They did it through a very intentional culture, and they had a superstar in place at different times that defined the style of play and defined the culture, along with the coaching staff and along with the front office, and so. That model exists for us. It's something we study and that we try to follow. I think you can say the same thing with um, the New England Patriots and what they've done. And at the end of the day, we believe that if we can create a system that Giannis can thrive in, we can plug in players around him that will help him thrive and will help the system thrive. It's Coach's job and that coaching staff to, to continue to develop and evolve that system around his skill sets and the skill sets of our players. And it's our job to help create the culture and the environment where those players want to come to work every single day and enjoy the people they're around, enjoy the style they play, enjoy the facilities that we have. Um, For us, the ownership sets that for us. We have a great ownership with with Mark Lassery and Wes Edens and Jamie Dynan and Mike Facitelli. These guys resource the heck out of us. They give us the opportunity to have the best in facilities, uh, the best at every touch point that the players um, have. We have the best, and we can do that in Milwaukee. We can do it with a great superstar. We can do it with a great coach and have a great system in play. I think we're going to have a chance.
0: You have a coach <laughs> in Mike Budenholzer who I I think spent I think it was 17 seasons in San Antonio and went through you know I think a couple different incarnations of their core, but all built around Tim Duncan. Having Bud there with you and and now as your head coach, has that allowed you to sort of you know you can examine and, and look from afar sometimes at how the Spurs handle things, but to have Bud there to have you found yourself going to him hey, how did they handle this? Or him sharing stories? Is there is there some value
1: in that as you try to oh, tremendous. Yeah. I mean tremendous amount of value and, and I think you know some of what I'm speaking of now and some of the the philosophies that I've grown and have adapted in time in a short time have come from Bud and in learning from him and learning from his experiences and, and he in turn learning from the time with Greg Popovich and the time with Tim Duncan. And I think he's imparted um that knowledge on Giannis. If you ask Giannis, you know, has he learned anything about what Tim Duncan did and how he handled certain things for Bud, he'd say absolutely. And if you ask me, uh, as you just did, the same thing on a front office side, absolutely. And so Bud's experience and the success he had in that system, in that environment, in that culture, uh, has brought tremendous value to our franchise, and and that's just the start of of the value that Bud brings and his staff and everything they've done for us, but absolutely.
0: You know, Duncan and Giannis don't necessarily play anything, don't necessarily play so much. Alike, but there are so many common traits. And, and to me, like when you think of those two, which is it is about winning. It's about the game. Both really loyal guys, you know, very, you know, family oriented. That's who's around them. Uh, not a lot of you look at either of them, not a lot of change in their life, like a lot of consistency. When you look at the model of, the kind of guy that you hope wants to stay in one place. It always feels like with Giannis that the opportunity is always there because it's inherent to who he is. Um, loyalty to me, like and I, you see it with the people around him and you know how he feels about his family. He's had one agent. You see the way he has, uh, what a good teammate he is. All those things I think it has to feel like they all lend themselves to if we just keep putting the right pieces around and create the right environment this is the kind of guy who should want to stay here.
1: Yeah, I think, again, just to, to generally speak, he's a very, very special, unique person, I believe, in the world of sports. Uh, he's the best player in the world, the MVP last year. He's playing at an even higher level this year, doing things at historic levels. On You think of a guy, the amount of games that he scored 30-plus points in less than 30 minutes just set a record, right? It just kind of happened the other night. His per-36 averages of over 35, 15, and 6 or 7, I think it is. Um, no one's ever done that in the history of the NBA. He's got a, a player efficiency rating. That's the best ever in the history of the NBA. This is the year after being the MVP. And I think to have all of those things that he does from a performance standpoint and still be the person that he is every single day, you talked a few minutes ago about meeting him the first time as a teenager, coming to coming from Greece and Milwaukee Bucks being the 15th pick, all those things. He's an unchanged person. He values family. He values continuity. He values real relationships. He values hard work. And he wants to perform and play in an environment every day with great people where he has a chance to win at the highest level. That's our job to continue to create that environment for him. What What have you learned in your time with him that
0: he does not have patience for or that he will not <laughs> tolerate? What are the things in a basketball organization that you just know we can't have that around here?
1: Yeah, I think um, Giannis is a very serious guy when it comes to competing. So it, it, the competitive level um, that he – desires and expects out of everyone around him is probably as high as anywhere that exists anywhere. And that's not, quite frankly, even on the bas- – it's not just on the basketball floor. It's not just his teammates. It's his coaches. It's the front office people. Everyone has to be vested in the opportunity to win at the highest level every single day like he is or or at least giving that effort. Not everyone's going to be honest, but to, to really strive for that. And so um, if, if I had to nail one thing, I would say a, a lack of tolerance for – non-competitiveness and whatever your role is in in your responsibility to compete to help us all get to where we need to get. You know, it's funny that, and I reported on this earlier today about the
0: in-season tournament and, you know, the league kind of tabling that vote in April. And there's been a lot of talk among, I think, more the guys in their 30s, star players who they're not really excited about that idea of the in-season tournament. And you know, if you're not in the knockout round, or that you, you get five or six days off, and I think most of those guys would prefer that. And I haven't asked Giannis about this. I don't know if you've talked to him, but you know, I kind of thought that Giannis will compete at anything. Like, I mean, he'll race you across the street and tra- right. Like that, I would be shocked if Giannis, if that thing was in play, that Giannis wouldn't. And even if you'd already won a title or two titles, or your main, you know, you had the best record in the league. I'd be shocked if Giannis did not treat a tournament like that like, like we're in this thing, we're gonna win it, like and I'm playing. Like have you have you talked to him about that
1: event? No, and, and I probably won't comment on, on that event or the leagues kind of discussions going on around that, but to your point about him being a competitor and, and compete at anything, I just think it's kind of a funny little story to add add some light to that. So just the other night, uh, there was a, a team-slash-family event that that I wasn't able to go to, but my, my family went to, and Giannis was there. And my little guy, Zeke, came home, and he was telling me how excited he was that he was, like, sword fighting, play sword fighting with Giannis, right? And so I started to send Giannis this text about, hey, like, Zeke told me how fun it was. Thanks so much. And, the, like, he beat you. And I paused for a second, and I'm like, I don't know if I need to, like, remind Giannis that Zeke, my three-year-old, beat him in a sword <laughs> fight. I don't want to kind of offend him here. But I sent it, and he sent a smiley face. You know, Zeke's too good for me, Mr. John, etc. But But um, he – it's true. It doesn't matter what it is. I've seen him in, you know, at one point, like, how much he was interested in pool, and he wanted to get good at pool and compete at that and just different things. He is an ultimate competitor. There's no doubt. You know, the, the word culture
0: gets thrown around in sports – um it's almost become kind of a cliche a little bit. And in your mind, in your experience, what ultimately drives what the environment is? Is it the you know, ownership management, the coach? My sense has always been your best player drives it. And he dictates what it is. And we talk about San Antonio, like Tim Duncan and Ginobili and Parker drove it. Now pop and RC Buford and all, like they all added to it and create the environment. But, is is it as simple as that in the end that that it's got to be that guy
1: yeah i think i think that uh maybe they don't create it maybe they do create it but do they drive it absolutely so are are they in the driver's seat because a, a really great player can set a culture negatively or positively you need all the other things to keep it going to build on it to to have it really thrive and and go in the direction it needs to go and I'd say first and foremost, starting with ownership. If an ownership isn't willing to re- ownership group is not willing to resource the things that it takes to have a great culture. I mean, it's, it's a fun thing to say. It's a cliche things. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of time and thought to really create a culture, uh, a championship culture. And, um, ownership groups support that. Coaches and hopefully front office executives and GMs, they support that, but you have to have the player in the middle that sets it and, or drives it, however you want to say that. and Giannis does that.
0: John, when you become GM in your mid-30s and it's a search that kind of finds you in the end and all of a sudden you meet with the ownership and they say, we're going to offer you the job, they offer you the job, you become GM of the team probably sooner than you might have expected in your career. When you go to bed that first night, or you're thinking about like all the parts of this job that you've got to get your arms around, what were you the most uncertain about, about whether you were ready or what did you have the most maybe trepidation about? That's something that's going to be a challenge for me. And either I need help with it or I've got to immerse myself in it. Or was there anything right at the
1: beginning when you get it a a little bit, maybe maybe sooner than you thought it might come? Well, first of all, I didn't sleep for a while. (laughs) <laughs> Not an exaggeration. I mean, it just uh, – you can imagine the emotion and, and excitement and everything that goes on. when, if, if you recall, like we had six or seven days before our first draft and free agency on the heels of that. Um, so there wasn't much sleeping. I was very, very, very fortunate to work first for Joe Dumars and John Hammond and with Jeff Waltman and Justin Zanuck and David Morway. These are some of the people who have poured into me um, over for over a decade of my career, and I think at that time maybe my 11- or 12-year career at that time. And I learned a ton from them. They would give me a lot of responsibility and opportunity. Kind of back to one of your earlier questions, I had a pretty good network in the league. I'd worked with a lot of these people, agents, GMs, assistant GMs. Um, And I'd done a lot of different things in team building and and roster management and dealing with personnel and scouting, et cetera, et cetera. I wasn't really fearful about any of those things, and I didn't have time to be. Um, We had to get to go. We had to work. We had a lot of things to do. My biggest uh, fear and biggest trepidation was the press conference. I'd never done anything in my life in media um, and really haven't done that much since. And so that was really the biggest fear is dealing with media and talking on the radio, being on TV, sitting in a press conference uh, with an ownership group, being announced as general manager was my very first experience ever doing anything media. And that was probably the biggest fear that I had going into any of that. It had nothing to do with the team building stuff.
0: Did, did you go like on, did you go like chase anything down on YouTube and say, hey, how did this guy handle his press conference? Did you, what did you do before that press conference?
1: So I, I relied heavily on uh, Barry Baum and Dan Smitsek, our our media group, and I just said, guys, like you're gonna have to help me and we spent as much time as I could in the two or three days leading into it in in preparation, just studying kind of what the questions would be and how to answer them and just kind of one at a time, get this one done and then and then it's funny, Barry said, Hey, after this we'll do a lot of we'll do a lot of radio. We'll get the <laughs> is that the easiest thing to do, we'll knock that out. So you're you came into the league, you know, in Detroit
0: as an intern with Joe Dumar's as GM and John Hammond was was on his staff, and you know they had won a championship together, been to the finals um, another year, and then uh, six I think it was six straight conference finals. Correct. Finals. Yeah. Um, you think of the first GM you were around, right? This was you know a background couldn't have been more different than yours. A Hall of Fame player, um, you know, a guy with great stature, not just in that marketplace, but but globally because of a playing career and then a successful GM career. When you're looking at the guy in the big seat and you're like, okay, I can't do it the way Joe Dumars does it. I'm not Joe Dumars and I, I don't, um, when, but when you're trying to figure out like what your style is going to be, who you're going to be like, how are you looking at it at that point is, is a young guy in a front office?
1: Yeah. You know, early on, you don't, at least I didn't, have aspirations of being a general manager. I had aspirations of working in basketball as long as I could in any role they'd allow me to work in. And I wanted to work for my hometown team. And so it was a dream come true to be an intern for the Pistons. As you grow and you're around it and you see them work every day and you start to actually understand what it means to be in a front office in in professional sports, um, you start learning things and try to pick up things and observe people. And there's many things that I learned from Joe. And early on, for sure, knew, well, if I'm going to do this, I can't be Joe. All the reasons you just said. The things that I could do, that I thought I could do, that Joe was amazing at is he has amazing tact, he has amazing composure and poise, and he's incredibly intelligent. And beyond that, he had this presence that I'll never be able to match, that he carried with all that, and that's why he's the great executive that he is, quite frankly. Um, but his his poise and his patience and his tact and his timing um, really have been unmatched, and, and something that I learned from him early on, and it was really a pleasure to work with a guy like that in in a franchise that you just mentioned, that back-to-back NBA finals, I think six straight Eastern Conference finals and six straight 50 win seasons. You were at Rochester College in Michigan. You
0: decided to spend a summer on campus. You had to get a part-time job,
1: and and you did what? (laughs) Well, so every year that I was at Rochester College, I had to get a part-time job uh, to to stay at Rochester College. Uh, My first year um, I went into the newspaper, went to the newspaper to find available jobs. And there was one that they were paying 12 bucks an hour. I'm like, that's, that's a lot of money. And uh, it happened to be uh, at a trailer park. So <laughs> I quickly became the head maintenance guy at a trailer park making $12 an hour. And they let me work basically as many hours as I needed to or could um, all summer. And it, it funded my college year for the next four years. Uh, after that, I would work every summer at this trailer park. And in maintenance, and you can imagine what maintenance means in a trailer park. <laughs> what, what, what 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 does maintenance mean in a trailer park? I mean, from from lawn care to uh, site prep and pouring concrete to cleaning out the uh, uh, the trailers after people have been evicted uh, to painting to shingling to you know just kind of on and on and on. And so, I grew up in a kind of a farming background. My family, I came from a family that that farmed. I grew up in a small community. Uh, parents that that renovated homes um, probably every three or four years. I lived in seven different homes in the same community, kind of growing up because we were flipping houses to kind of afford houses. And so uh, I luckily knew how to do a lot of those things and actually enjoyed doing a lot of those things. And now it's hard to find time to do anything with my hands and, and be a handyman. But I, I like it when I can. What What
0: was the worst thing you came across in a trailer, uh, a trailer home? that had been abandoned, evicted, uh, uh,
1: family moved out? What, what was the worst thing you saw? Just, I would just say, like, if you've ever watched a show Hoarders, right, like, it's real. And and trailers are smaller and, and confined areas and just mess, you know, a lot of people's mess and personal stuff. And just to go in there with the mask on and garbage bags and just start throwing stuff out was quite an experience, quite a humbling experience, but... Something I'm grateful for. I mean, I, I got paid really well to do it. It literally did allow me to stay in college.
0: Yeah, I spent a summer as a custodian at a middle school, um, and one of the jobs was was to take a razor blade and go through all the desks, and you had to scrape the gum oh, yeah. off the bottom of the desk. I never ever put gum under a desk again. Don't do that. Someone's got to scrape it off. That was. Um, they're, they're good jobs to have because it reminds me, like, hey, man, I better go to school. Yeah. Like, I can't. That's right. Uh, I'm not I'm not built to work a real job. That's right. Um, and I still haven't. So, uh, but the idea of sort of getting your arms around all the responsibilities, like like Sam Presti said this to me once in this way, is like, there's a reason they call it general manager. Like, the word emphasis is on general. And that until you sit in that seat, even as closely as you might have worked with John Hammond in um milwaukee and your years together with him until you sit in that seat are you maybe a little oblivious to how many people want a piece of you in any given day from so many different areas inside outside
1: an organization undoubtedly i i um i believe i called john shortly after and said i had no idea and i've probably told him a number of times since Uh, it's the greatest honor, the greatest responsibility that anyone on a professional track, career track that I was on, can have. It's a massive responsibility. That being said, in Sam, I think is exactly right. We generally manage every single day, and it's it's managing up, it's managing down, it's managing across. And if you're doing it the right way, I think you're doing it in every facet of the organization because you care about having a relationship and a partnership with the business side. You know, Peter Fagan, our team president, is a great partner, and I can't do anything without talking to him and he doesn't do anything without talking to me because it matters. We work together. And the same thing with Bud on on the coaching side and Troy Flanagan on the performance side, relationships with our players, relationships with your agents, managing up to your owners every single day, and then I haven't even talked about my staff, my direct staff in the front office. And so um, it's it's really remarkable to to see how many people are stakeholders invested in this big COG, this big machine of professional sports. And it's a humbling thing to be one of the people that are responsible for keeping it moving forward. And it's, uh, it's a great responsibility and something that I hopefully continue to get better better at every day.
0: John, when, when you're trying to get a decision made, big, small, somewhere in between, and your ownership structure um, isn't singular. I mean, there's other teams that have multiple partners, but the Board of governor, um, you know, the, the governor changes each five years with your group. And how is that in trying to, because they don't always agree on things, and to be able to get them on board with something and then move to the other places you need to get
1: people on board, like how does that impact decisions that have to get made? You know, the great thing is is they have been tremendous sounding boards more than anything, and I mean that in the almost level of respect pretty much every step of the way. Um, really, really big decisions are longer conversations, um, more in-depth analysis. Uh, but at the end of the day, and at the end of the day, they've hired Bud to coach the team, and they might want to have discussions, they might want to have opinions, and they do have opinions, but Bud coaches the team, and Peter runs the business, and I run the basketball. And at the end of the day, they take our recommendations. They, they allow us to make strong recommendations, well-thought-out recommendations. We have great conversations. Sometimes they all agree. Sometimes they all disagree. Sometimes they all agree with me or disagree with me. But at the end of the day, they allow us to make the decisions in our professional areas and therefore be responsible for the results of the decisions. And I think that's all you can ever ask for.
0: When you say Bud coaches the team, that means, in your mind, what won't you do with a head coach? I don't know, That maybe some others do, some other organizations do in terms of input. What are, like, where's a line where you say, that's Bud's realm,
1: and and I don't feel like I can cross into it. You know, for me, and it's, I'm so grateful and thankful for the relationship that we're, we've mm-hmm. built and are continuing to build, um, the respect that he has for my position in, in the things that I do and, and likewise me for him. Uh, what I will do is we'll have conversations, most most often in private, we'll talk about stuff. More just, hey, I have an idea, or I've thought about this, or you thought about it, and he does the same with me on the roster. What I'll never do is challenge him or question him um, in a public setting and, and really not in a private setting he is an expert basketball coach this is a two time nba coach of the year has taken two different franchises 60 plus wins part you mentioned it 17 years at spurs part of four championships he's our coach that's his job and he's great at it and and he makes his decisions and he's responsible for decisions just like i am but but i think what we do with each other is we bounce ideas off each other we share ideas we have thoughts we have opinions and sometimes strong opinions but at the end of the day, we, we rely on each other for our own professional areas. The issue of tampering has been at the forefront of the league the last few
0: years. the league put in some stricter penalties in the off season i 'm not sure not sure anybody thinks that there's really a way to police all that goes on. you know you know what you 're up against you know every team in the league wants um you know, certainly every big market wants to believe they have a chance to sign the MVP and uh, if he's potentially a free agent at the end of next season if he doesn't sign an extension this summer. How do you approach that idea? Do you feel like you have to be vigilant? Do you, like,
1: w- what do the Bucks do to combat it, if, if anything? Yeah, and not to, not to be boring, but I think it goes back to what we said 25 minutes ago about building a culture, building an environment, um, sustaining an environment where our players have a chance to win at the highest level and love coming to work every single day. If we can do that, we've done what we're supposed to do in this business. And I don't think we can really focus on too much more or worry about too much more. And, and I think players that, um, want to win at the highest level, want to enjoy work and care about that first and foremost, uh, appreciate that, respect that. And I think ultimately, um, we'll reward teams that do that. The big market, small market challenges that exist, you
0: listen, like your geography is your geography and there's pluses and negatives based on what anybody wants in, in every situation. What has to be in place when you are a non-destination free agent market to know that like you've given yourself every chance to to make a player like Giannis say, I don't need to go somewhere else to find w- what it
1: is that I want. Uh, I would ask you. I would ask you a question. What defines a destination free agent market? I would say a place that when you have max
0: cap space, you know you could go get um, the A list free agent. Now, what you guys have done a tremendous job of in free agency are with role players. Kyle Corver, Now, like you competed with everybody in the league for Kyle. There wasn't a contender who didn't want Kyle Corver, right? And obviously, you know, Bud had a relationship with him and played for him and the idea of playing with the honest and all those things, I would say a destination market to me by definition would be that, um, you know, and there was a few years ago when, when now Greg Monroe came to Milwaukee, you beat, the Lakers were involved and the Knicks were involved and we can argue about the level of, at the time he was a sought-after free agent, Correct. right? Yeah. But, like if we say it's, Let's look at last summer's free agency. It's two LA teams. Well, at least one of the New York teams became it does. I mean, the Knicks should be. They haven't been. Miami has proven certainly as long as Pat Riley is there and their program that that they're obviously dangerous in that area. But you know, traditionally like it's either, you know, it's warm weather places and it's New York and you can count them on one hand, the places right that are really legit destination markets where you can go out and say, we're going to clear the cap space and we're going to go at the glamour franchises to get a player.
1: Yeah. So I, I think like what you've largely described in my opinion is, is the geographical yeah. features of a market, um, geographical location of a market. And uh, I would argue that our last free agency is a pretty good example of another uh, version of, of destination markets. Uh, Chris Middleton didn't have to sign with the Milwaukee Bucks. Brooke Lopez didn't have to sign with Milwaukee Bucks. Both those guys were pretty highly sought after free agents. Kyle Korver, who you mentioned, and I thank you for that, was wanted by every contender, yep. no matter where they were. Didn't have to sign with Milwaukee. Um, Wesley Matthews, you know, is a good free agent get for us. And so I think Wesley well, Matthews
0: was a max player. Yeah, he was a max player in the past. He, yep.
1: I think what defines a, a destination market is your superstar and who they are as a person and the reputation that they have and— how they treat their teammates and how they work every single day and what the noise is or isn't around them every day in the office. Um, is your ownership group invested in building a, ch- a contender and a champion? And what are your facilities look like and how are you resourced? What's the style of play that you have? How are you managed, and What's the relationship with the front office between players? And, again, those are things that I think we can control, that we have controlled. We are going to continue to try to get better every single day. Um, but I would argue that we are a free agent destination in Milwaukee, and we've proven that in our last free agency. We're continuing to work to – it's not always the superstar, megastar X that you get in there. It's the right guys that fit your system, that fit your superstar. Can you get them to your uh, market and to your team and have success with it? And that's what we're trying to do. Uh,
0: best record in the NBA, all-star voting underway. And then the, the, the you know there's a whole formula of how teams are picked. How many
1: all-stars – do the Bucs get? Well, I'm a big history guy. So if you look at history, any team that's performed at the level that we have, um, or even near the level we have in the last 10 to 15 years, they get three to four All Stars. And I think it's pretty clear that we have two All Stars on our team because we do, in Chris Middleton Giannis, and Giannis. And both of those guys are having an even better seasons than they did last year. And our team's having a better season than we did last year. Um, I really think that Brook Lopez as the best, one of the best centers in the league and all of his defensive metrics are off the charts. I mean, he is easily the most impactful defensive center in the NBA right now. Um, has a real case to be an all-star as well. Eric Bledsoe, um, if you look, and this is kind of an argument I would have for all of our guys. If you look at it, they're per 36 minutes. And the reason I say that is our net margin is almost a plus 13. Right. It's, the, it's the highest margin in, in the history of the NBA. So there's a lot of nights where our guys don't play the fourth quarter. They don't have to play. And good or bad, and that's not to be. And that's not to sit here and be and brag, that's just to simply say that if we were in close games every single night, Chris would be playing 32, 33, 34 minutes. Eric would be Giannis, Brooke, and these guys' stats would be elevated to a, a place where I think their whole stats would be better than a lot of the players that are being talked about more frequently as all-stars. And so Eric and Chris, um, I think, are clearly in, and I think Brooke has a, has a really big case as well with his defensive impact. But
0: Brooke, that's an interesting one with Brooke and – you know, Utah went through this with Rudy Gobert, where they, you know, you know all the metrics of how dominant defensively they've been an elite defensive team. It was a team with a, certainly a winning team, not to the level your team is, and you know they had fought that with with Gobert, and now Brooke is another a little bit more of a case study. You see if one of those guys, I think sometimes what happens if one of those guys breaks through, then it becomes maybe more the
1: norm. Yeah, and this is like I probably tie in a couple of thoughts here, but. Um, there have been in, in, in the history of the All-Star game, defensive guys rewarded. You know, I was around one of the best in Ben Wallace. And, you know, Giannis, ironically, is, is, I think one of only, he's the only player right now in the NBA that's top five in defensive win shares and defensive rating. And the only four other guys that have done that are Dwight Howard, uh, Ben Wallace, Tim Duncan, and I'm forgetting a fourth guy. Some big-time defensive players. But to kind of transition to Brooke a little bit, there's guys that have been rewarded for the defensive impact. Rudy and, and Brooke are clearly the best defensive centers in the NBA, and I think both guys deserve to be awarded for that. Defense is a pretty big part of what our, our game is, and these guys are dominant right now. John, 37-6, and six,
0: as dominant of a regular season as we've seen in the East in a wild 2019 NBA Executive of the Year, John Horst. John, thanks for
1: coming in and spending time, man. I appreciate it. Woj, thanks. is a lot of fun. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you. To my guest today, Milwaukee Bucks GM, John Horst. Be sure to listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll catch you next time.